Today's special episode of the Cyclantist Podcast is an interview, but it's not really the sort that we normally do. It's also not one of our sponsored episodes, to be very clear. My guest today isn't a pro cyclist or an engineer at a bike brand, but Massimo Alpian has a story worth telling and, I think, worth listening to. Bikes might have saved his life, and they've defined it for years since. There is another motive behind this podcast. This is a call to action. Along with the folks at Manual for Speed and Cannondale, we've put together a grant dedicated to supporting BIPOC and LGBTQ crit racing. We're going to be providing bikes and kit and support and some cash. And to help fund that grant, we've got some merch that we need you to head over and buy. It's at vengavengavenga.fans. Venga is V-E-N-G-A. And it is available right now. We've got bottles and t-shirts and all sorts of good stuff. So, if this interview with Massimo strikes you in some way and you want to support the things that we're talking about, head on over to vengavengavenga.fans and pick up some cool stuff. Massimo has been instrumental in this whole project and his story, I think, is proof of its importance. So, let's drop right into it. Why don't we why don't we start with this? Why don't we start with Mas, you introduce yourself. Tell me who you are and what you do now. All right. Well, Kaylee knows the answer to this, but the broader public doesn't. <laughs> uh, I'm Massimo Alpin. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I grew up in New York City, New York. Uh, I'm a cyclist, um, an activist, an advocate, uh, a husband, uh, an uncle. I'm, I'm many things. Um, and I also happen to be a gay man. And what do you do professionally these days? I manage global media relations for Cannondale and GT Bikes. Which is how we deal with each other professionally, but also we should, I mean, full disclosure, like we're buddies. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, just full disclosure there. So Mas, the reason I wanted to talk to you today is because we have these do racing grants that are, that are coming out. And I think that your story is, is a powerful one to put what we're trying to do here in context. Right. So, um, Maybe we can kind of step back in history mm-hmm. a little bit to to how did you find bikes? And then we'll, we'll work our way up to sort of where we are today. So let's go all the way back to, to you finding bicycles, first and foremost. So, yeah. So my earliest memory of riding a bike was probably when I was, you know, five or six years old, um, my mom would take me up and down our block, which is a pretty busy block in New York City, um, and show me how to ride a bike. Um, And she would do that on Sundays when my dad would be at soccer games at Flushing Meadow Park. Um, And it was interesting because culturally, my dad really wanted me to play soccer um, because that's the culture he comes from. And as young as I was, I was interested by soccer and I still love the game. It's, it's a beautiful game to watch, but all I really wanted to do is ride bikes or run. And uh, on Sundays, my dad would want to take me to soccer games. Um, and like I said, even as young as I was, I have 
memories of this. And I would say, oh, you know, like I want to stay home with mom. I want to stay home with mom. And I had a fascination with bikes and my mom got me a bike. And I remember that one Sunday when my dad was at a soccer game and I, I somehow, I know how I found myself to not, to convince him to not take me with him. Um, and my mom showed me how to ride a bike. Tell me a little bit about your parents. I think that, that that's relevant to what we're going to talk about later as well. Yeah. So, um, I'm first generation. Um, my parents are immigrants to this country. Um, they came to this country at different stages of their lives. Um, my mom, uh, came to this country when she was quite young, um, from Europe. Um, she was about five or six years old. Um, the last place that they lived before they came to the United States was interestingly enough, the Middle East. Um, my grandmother was actually a Red Cross nurse, um, which is really interesting and was stationed in Iran. Um, and my grandfather was working on the oil fields in Iran during that time, um, during the forties, early fifties. So it was quite interesting because um, they went from Europe to the Middle East and then came to the United States for a better life. And then um, my father um, also came to this country at a later stage in his life when he was um, in his 20s. So he was a bit older um, when he came to this country, really fresh immigrant. Um, They met in New York City, um, interestingly enough, at Flushing Meadows Park. Um, My father, played in a um, pickup um, Hispanic soccer league in Flushing Meadows Park. And they had a mutual friend. um, And that mutual friend asked my mom if she wanted to come to a soccer game one Sunday and watch him play. Um, They were buddies. And my mom, as the story goes, my mom went to that soccer game, landed eyes on my dad and was like, who is that like really hot guy? And... (laughs) (laughs) Um, and asked for an intro, um, and that's where the story started and ended. Um, you know, my mom grew up in a quite like traditional conservative background, so um, uh, my dad was her first and last boyfriend. So she she married her first boyfriend. So and that makes me first generation um, in this in this country from my family. What was growing up like for you? Like, you know. Give people a sense for what Moss as a as a as a teenager in New York City was was up to and doing and and what was your life like? It was, you know, looking back now, I have so much perspective that I feel like I didn't have back then, and probably because I was sheltered and closeted and grew up in in a traditional Catholic family and. Um, you know, I think growing up, I think there were really amazing things growing up in a place like New York City. You know, I had access to different cultures, different backgrounds, um, ambient diversity, things that I know I value and that have taught me so much about people and humans and respect um, and understanding that you don't get in a lot of other parts of the world. you know, just looking at back at like what my, let's say my third grade 
classroom demographics where it was like pretty beautiful and unbelievable. Um, but that was always juxtaposed with my home life with my parents who, like I mentioned, were, were quite traditional. They were immigrants, um, you know, quite religious as well. Um, and in an atmosphere at home where a lot of that diversity, that acceptance that I experienced at, at a school in school or in the city I lived in was very different at home where I felt like I, I couldn't reveal who I was or the things I was feeling or um, even down to my love of bikes because still even as a teenager my dad was really pushing me to play soccer and you know I have understanding of where that comes from and the way he grew up and the culture he comes from and who he is um, but at the same time you know I wasn't a lot of times I wasn't um, offered the, the opportunity or the privilege to pursue what I wanted to pursue or be who I was, whether it was my identity as a person who's queer or even just being able to ride a bike and quit soccer. You wrote a piece that, that, um, and shared it with me and it's about, well, it's about a lot of things, but it, it <clears throat> opens with a pretty visceral scene. Are you, are you comfortable talking about that? About that yes. moment? Okay. Uh, well maybe I'll just let you maybe just tell that story then. Yeah, um, you know, I shared this piece with you because we were planning on doing a, a ride this summer and hopefully we'll be able to do that at some point next year um, with our friends James and Owen. And a lot of it recalled the night I, I came out, um, which I'll never forget because that was the night that I feel like I never was was a bike truer to who I was and how it helped me. Um, and it was it was not a coming out story filled with, you know, flowers and roses and joy and celebration. Um, I, I came out against my own will because my parents found out and I was still closeted. And I was living at home with them. Um, I was uh, just coming out of college and um, it was a really difficult, difficult moment. And my parents were extremely upset and angry with me, um, particularly my father. Um, you know, he felt that I had been lying to him that, um, that this isn't really who I was, that I was confused um, and that um, there was just all this rage built up in him. Um, and I think all that rage was just maybe, not maybe, obviously filled with homophobia. Um, and, you know, my father, um, the, the, the argument got turned from rage filled to physical. Um, and I, after there was a physical incident between me and him, um, where the F word was thrown at me, I decided to leave my house and grab my bike and, um, just go on a ride to this beach that was pretty close to our house. Um, and it was really cool because this, this beach was kind of like a place where I would go to 
to escape or just like sit and think to myself of what, what life could be. At times I would go to that beach and think about, you know, like what life could be if I was out. Um, and there was always a clear view of Manhattan from that beach um, where you could just like literally touch the skyscrapers. And I would often just sit there and think about like, oh, you know, I wonder what life could be like if I, in the city, you know, in this place that represented like escape, um, like living in Manhattan and li living and working in one of those buildings and being who, and, uh, who I was. And a lot of that stemmed from, you know, just taking the train to the city and seeing, you know, queer people walking around proudly, you know, seeing two, two men holding hands, walking down the street as a couple or two women. Um, and um, the last time I sat on the, that beach um, in such a profound way from that night was actually like the night of 9-11. And um, so that beach also like had a lot of traumatizing memories to it, albeit. And, you know, I, I, I've only told about two or three other people this story, including Kaylee, my husband, and, and our friend Owen. And, and I actually went to that beach with the intent of um, possibly taking my life that night because it was such a traumatizing moment that I came out. And um, I didn't expect my parents to say the things they said to me down to that um, literally telling me that they wish I wasn't born. And I couldn't picture myself living beyond that night and um and that i wouldn't be able to be living a happy life and i sat there on that beach and i i cried for hours and i didn't know what to do and i just remember my bike was like laying on the beach and it was a clear night and the moonlight hit off <laughs> the the top tube of the frame of my bike. And I just paused for a moment and I was like, I just want to go on like another spin around the neighborhood and head back home and see what happens. And I don't know if it was the bike that gave me that inspiration to just walk away from what I came there to think I wanted to do, or it was a distraction, but I feel like if I did, if I walk there and didn't ride my bike there, I don't know if I'd be here today. I'm glad the bike was there. I am too. Yeah. I'm very glad the bike was there. It, it feels, it feels almost, um, I struggle with this because I it feels almost just so superficial and superfluous to talk about the bicycle in relation to something that impactful for you a, a day a moment that was that impactful for you a you know basically all the all the ills in the world and we and we bring it back to bikes all the time right I I personally kind of struggle with that on a regular basis but that's exactly why I wanted to to talk to you about this today because. At, on the other on the other hand, we're talking about a tool that that can have such a dramatic impact on on people's lives, and that's essentially what what the entire premise of this project is, right? It is trying to use this tool 
to impact other people in in even a, a small way similar to the way that impacted your life, right? Yeah, I, I feel like what you're trying to say is, you know, yes, in, in its purest form, a bike is an object. Um, and, and we try to not attach ourselves to objects, but I think the bike is also, you know, not to sound contrived, but it is a tool for, for me, you know, I could say this, that it's a tool for exploration. It's a tool for joy, for uh, connection. But I think for me, I think often the bike is um, a tool for, has been for me personally, a tool to realize other people love me for who I am and all parts of me. And that has also learned, and, and it has also taught me to love myself in a way that I never knew I could love myself before for all parts of me and who I am. Mm. So you have this life altering day, right? A life altering moment. Um, Mm-hmm. And you come out of it, and 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 were you out at that point? Were were you, or was it just your parents? What what was the ne- what were the next steps for you in, in this journey to where we are now? To flash forward, you know, a little bit through those years, you know, I, I graduated from graduate school and started working in international nonprofit work. Um, focused mostly on children in armed conflict and setting up legal human rights frameworks in countries where there was or was or is armed conflict at that time, um, particularly focusing on Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa. So I had the privilege and opportunity to focus and and work in um, countries and areas like Brazil uh, Colombia, um, and, you know, the Central African Republic at that time, which is what it was called, um, Sudan, South Sudan. So it was really interesting work, um, really fascinating work. It was interesting seeing how bikes even played into a lot of, um, the programs that we were running. Um, for example, in Brazil, I was working in a program that took former narco, uh, children who were narco traffickers as young as six or seven who were um, trafficking, particularly cocaine, um, and working for, um, you know, the narco gangs in, in Brazil. Um, and we were establishing rehabilitation programs for them to... Um, one be psychologically and emotionally rehabilitated from that and then also um giving them uh, the skills and opportunity to reinsert themselves in society and and whether it was finding a job or going back to school um and some of the programs that would bring the kids in were one soccer because that is the main sport in brazil and two would be bikes Hmm. um and three would be art um so a lot of them would like be these programs that were grassroots, that we'd work with local organizations on the ground. Um, I was working with larger larger organizations like UNICEF um, or the um, International Rescue Committee. And then we partner with smaller organizations on the ground on a grassroots level that were um, 
you know, formalizing these programs. So, you know, it was really interesting work. It was really fascinating work. Um, but, you know, I, I was also questioning of like, you know, where do I want to go with all this? Because I, I love bikes. <laughs> I love being outside. And I was wondering if there were ways that I could bring some of what I was doing on the ground in this work with UNICEF and these larger organizations and how I could bring that to the bike and outdoor industry, which at that time I was noticing wasn't doing a lot, you know, flash forward now, you know, almost 12 to 15 years later, the industry has definitely found its, its moment and it getting to a better place of finding ways to work with different communities and, and do this work um, or me more meaningful work besides selling bikes or selling gear. But, you know, at that time, I was like, this is definitely one way I can find my way into the bike and outdoor space, if that makes sense. So I'll pause there and see. Well, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in like that exact sort of sort of uh, inflection moment, right, where because fundamentally what we're talking about here is using bicycles to open doors and using bicycles to speak with people and, and connect with people that at for a very long time, bikes didn't really make a whole lot of effort to speak and connect with, right? Uh, mm -hmm. what, what exactly were the, the, the points at which you, you made sort of a conscious decision and why to step into these industries uh, and how, I guess, is, is the other one is to step into these industries that, that are not necessarily full of people like you. Yeah, I think, you know, one, it, it was, I'll, I'll definitely say before I go further, it was scary, you know, for me to, to take the leap into these industries. You know, I, I am different. I am demographically the minority. Um, I look different. I have a different name. I, I'm, I'm just, uh, for all intents and purposes, I don't represent the majority of what the industries I've worked with are for, for individuals who are leaders in that space. Um, and a few moments definitely brought, brought me to want to take that leap. Um, the first was I think situational. Um, it was right around 2009 to 2010 that I decided to make that career change. And it was right around the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2010. And um, a lot of the projects I, went, I was working on, I was a full-time employee and then got switched to contract. And um, a lot of... <laughs> This is just purely situational. My contract ran out and I was thinking of, of changing careers at that time. And this gave me the moment where I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go and take this leap and, and do this and take this risk. Um, two, the other thing was just looking at the space and reading publications looking at at the bylines i mean i was quite in, involved and like took extra steps probably because of you know my curiosity and my educational background of like who are the people writing these stories you know i i get 
a print publication and open it up and just see, wow, like none of these individuals represent me. Um, I'd flip the pages and look at the athletes and minus, you know, several of the South American cyclists that I'd see on the world in the world tour at that time, I'd be like, none of these guys really look like me or represent me. And for anyone listening, I am brown. I am very, for all, I look very um, ethnic for all intents and purposes, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, but, you know, also I never heard or read a story about a queer athlete in the late 2000s or, or, or any time during the 90s to the early 2000s to the late 2000s, even into the early 2010s on a on a global scale on a national scale or even a regional scale um i was that was also around a time where the the hot moment of crit racing in the the early 2010s to to mid 2010s started and and even during then i i didn't see anyone i saw more athletes of color for sure but i didn't see anyone really from the queer community that was out and proud and and telling those stories and you know, from my own life experience and things that I was experiencing from traveling the world in this line of work, I was like, you know, these individuals are definitely there. I just don't think anyone's really caring to tell their stories, maybe because they don't look like them, they aren't like them. I didn't know what was being represented in the, in on the journalistic side, but I knew those stories were out there, but they just weren't being told. And I think no one really cared to tell them or to look. Mm-hmm. And when that hit me as well, I was also coming to terms with my own identity and finding my voice and, and finding confidence. And I said, you know, this could be a really mo- cool moment where I find my way in this space where there is almost zero representation and to find ways to take up space, but also, um, you know, create a, a path for other people like me that want to work in the industry or find ways to amplify those voices as I keep finding my, uh, my space in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I had all these dreams and hopes of what my career could look like. I didn't think I'd be where I was today 10 years ago, which I'm really proud of where I've gotten and all the people that have offered access and opportunity to me along the way. Um, but yeah, I think those, that those were those inflection points for mm-hmm. sure. What was the, what was the first step in? What was the first job? I quit my job in the, um, nonprofit field and I went and worked, um, at the bike service counter and the action sports counter at EMS in Soho in downtown New York city for a very basic amount of hourly wage and, um, started all over again. And that was my first way to enter the industry was through retail. I love that. I I, I mean, like how many of us have that, have that piece of the story, right? (laughs) I do think that that, that's, that's a common thread through, who hasn't worked in a bike shop that ends up, you know, on podcasts in the, in the bike industry, <laughs> all of us at some point, all of us at some point. And, you know, I think 
working retail is such an important part of understanding so many parts of, of our sport and our industry, 100%. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about crit racing. I want to go back. I actually want to go back to when we first started about this, started talking about this project, which I think was on a ski lift. Was it, were we at Eldora? I think we we're on a ski lift. Uh, we were on a ski lift at Eldora. That's right. Yep. Where we started talking about this project and why and why crits in particular uh, seem like an avenue to reach people that were not being reached, right? Mm-hmm. And part of that came back to what things that you had told me about sort of just accessibility of of like like the Red Hook series and crit racing in mm-hmm. general and things like that. Like what what was what are you what have been your experiences with the sort of crit scene because that that is a, it's fundamentally you know that that's what we're talking about with these with these grants right is trying to get folks that that just have barriers up trying to remove some of those barriers to to that particular world because we do think it's pretty powerful you and I yeah I I think crit racing in general is is powerful for our sport. One because it's rad and it's 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 exciting to watch and race and it's thrilling and it's all those cool things and it brings people together and the spectating is unbelievable and but you know traditionally even growing up in New York you know crit racing has a a urban element to it a hundred percent and when you see some of these some of the <clears throat> crit racers that come out on the scene they are coming from you know demographically urban areas and um in general urban areas tend to be more diverse and have more representation so you know coming from new york i was able to see that firsthand of what the crit scene looked like especially in the 2010s which is when um or the late late 2000s into the 2010s is when I I saw that flourish and it was fascinating to me not because I didn't know I lived in a diverse place but seeing all these different people from all walks of life come together for the love of bikes um, was really special to me Um, whether it was individuals who were black brown indigenous women um non-binary you see all these individuals come together in a really cool space that i never saw before in sport um you know we definitely see representation in sport um you know in american sport you can watch watch a football game or a basketball game or even a soccer game but i never saw so many different people from all walks of life come together in, in such a unique way and that's why i think crit racing especially because you definitely don't see that in cycling you know you don't you don't see that particularly in mountain biking you don't see that in um you know in gravel you know a cla- in general gravel yeah yeah or, or gravel or stage racing you know especially with tr- traditional road racing i'll say and um it's it's really cool and i think it does have to do with access right like i didn't grow up near a a mountain biking world-class mountain biking trails i didn't grow up near um state parks or things you know i grew up in a proper city and and the closest i had to a trail was a a flat trail that ran through a a city park you know that was my access to nature or that beach that i mentioned which was often polluted and not the 
the best place, but it was my slice of nature that I would adventure, right? Um, and when when that's all you know, that's all you know. And when it comes to access, you know, road cycling, definitely, you know, we, we don't say road, road is dead. And, um, you know, road, road cycling is pretentious and it's exclusionary and um, you have to look a certain way. And, and those things are true to some extent for a certain group of road cyclists that have dominated the sport and still continue to. But what I'm seeing now is something that I've 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 seen over the years, but I I think is coming to a really cool moment in time where crit racing in particular um, represents the most diverse discipline in road and um, brings people from all walks of life. And, and what I'm seeing now is probably like this this renaissance moment for 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 crits and crit cycling and i think a lot of it has to do with you know key folks in in that scene you know whether it be legion or other teams or other individuals that are really being trailblazers but um i think we're at this really cool point of time where these grants are so important because you know folks are waking up that road is not dead that crit racing is not dead and that crits are really cool and provide a lot of access yeah they're rad you know we love them yeah i think when you're always around people that look like you and are like you you forget how to make a space feel more inclusive versus exclusionary if that makes sense and i right. think a lot of the guys i first started writing with a lot of the people i first started writing with were always around people that were like them and forgot how to be more inclusive or or even just down to like using certain words or what they said one example i'll give is you know i showed up to a group ride and at that time like this was like maybe you know two years after we moved to boulder and i had my wedding band on because brett and i had gotten married um, and I showed up to Gride and two guys came up to me. They were very friendly. I introduced myself. They introduced themselves before we, we hit the road. And they looked at my wedding band and said, oh, you know, what does your wife do? And I said, you know, I, it, I don't think it was meant to be homophobic or mean. I just think that was intrinsic bias because you're always around people that are like you in a place like Boulder. Um, as as much as Boulder prides itself on being inclusive and diverse, it, it, it cannot be at times as much as I love where I live. And that was one moment where I was like, I don't know if that happened. Like, I'm sure that could happen in, in a lot of different scenarios, but I don't know if, if someone in New York would ask that question mm. when I showed up to a group ride. Because I think there are around so many people from all different walks of life. There's a moment where you question what you're taught to say, mm. if you should actually say it. Yeah, Does that I, make sense? Yeah, yeah, they weren't trying to be yeah. antagonistic. They weren't trying to be rude. They just It just didn't even occur to them. Have I experienced, like, to answer your question earlier, like, in a more direct way, have I experienced homophobia in sport? 100% I have. Outright homophobia, yes. Have I experienced more things that are nuanced? That as well, you know? And, like, one more example I would be is, you know, another group standing like before, you know, we were out on a long day and a storm was coming in and we were rushing to get home. 
and I made a joke and I, I think a lot of the guys there didn't know I was gay because um, I was fairly new to the group and, and you know it's not like I would show up and be like hey everyone I'm I'm Masmo Alpian I'm I'm gay how are you you know like you know it's just uh, right and I I said something like well I guess I should have brought like my bivy with me or something and then one of the other guys joked like well you know, you don't want to get too close to him at night, or like some sort of a homophobic mm. innuendo of like, well, you don't want two guys, like almost like, you know, two guys living together. That's kind of weird, you yeah. know, like, oh, uh, you never know what'll happen. <laughs> and I was like, and then I questioned myself and I was like, okay, that was kind of like a stupid thing. That wasn't kind of, that was just a stupid thing to say. Like, what does that mean? And why are you saying it? And why do you have to say something like that? What to prove that you're, I'm not thinking gay thoughts, you know, like, you know, what are you trying to prove to someone by saying that no one else, I, I wasn't thinking that, you know, right. <laughs> and, but, you know, um, unfortunately in those moments, because I am the minority, you know, I'm in a different place now in my life, but years ago I was scared to stand up for myself or even challenge it in a group setting because I was like, who's, who's going to back me up here? Mm. Is there going to be someone that's going to back me up here? And also, that means I'm like, just telling everyone like, hey, I'm gay and fuck you. Like, you know, and then I'm like questioning, like, am I going to change the group dynamic if I say something, you know, mm -hmm. is everyone going to like hate on me? Like, you know, you're, you're questioning these things that I almost was questioning in like high school when I was mm -hmm. a teenager. And then I, half of me is like, I don't care. Like, of course I'm going to say something. And then the other half of me in that moment was like, well, I don't want to ruin this experience for everyone else. And you know, those are the moments where you even have internalized homophobia, where you're, you know, the structures, the things, right? Like, we don't need to go down. The, I mean, we all know these structures, this, this systemic stuff is there that we've been taught, even I've been taught, where I even fall into it. And I'm like, well, I, I don't want to inconvenience others to stand up for myself in this moment, you know? I mean, just the fact that you have to stop and think about that in in certain situations is exactly what we're talking about right like that that's mm -hmm. i guess the, the question i'm trying to ask is like do you kind of wish that these interviews didn't have to happen anymore like that isn't that kind of the end goal is that you know like i came to you and said mas like i think you have a story that is worth telling that is that that, that my listeners need to hear um that the bike industry needs to hear that that you know that people need to hear just in case there's 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 someone out there who wants to follow a similar path or someone out there who's not comfortable trying to follow a similar path or someone out there who's just not comfortable, period. Um, and you were immediately on board, right? But wouldn't it be nice, and isn't that the goal, to, to not have mm -hmm. to talk about this kind of stuff? I mean, you know, you've shared some pretty personal things today. Yeah. I mean, yes, I hope, you know, a hundred years from now where no one's sitting here having to talk about these things because we do have representation, we have acceptance, diversity. I don't know if we'll get there. It's a slow process. If you look at the history of the world, it took centuries to put these systems and institutions in place that perpetuate, you know, racism, homophobia, marginalization. It's going to take just as long amount of time to dismantle them. So, you know, I do hope we'll get there one day. Um, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow, but we're definitely making steps and leaps and bounds every day, you know, and, and for me, my hope is 
you know, yeah, like I shared really personal stuff today. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm not, I mean, yes, for all intents and purposes, I'm young, but I'm not, you know, in my early twenties, I'm in my late thirties and I'm sharing this story for the first time beyond just the less than handful of people that know it, including you, my husband and Owen. And, um, and I, I do that not to, you know, air my dirty laundry or, um, to have a moment to pat myself on the back of where I come, but more of if there's a kid like me listening to this podcast right now and feels inspired, whether it's through bikes or not through bikes, to live a life of truth and be who they are fully every day, then I think you and I did something really special right now in our conversation. Um, and it even cooler if that that kid or that individual or that person does it through bikes because that's how I found my path. 